This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show. We're going to be talking about the inflation report, where you should be positioned uh, for the inflation, uh, as well as a, a second guest talking about the night effect on how that's impacting markets and, and where you could be positioned for that. Uh, but before we're going to do that, we're going to have Professor Siegel. Professor, we knew it was going to be a hot inflation report. How are you reacting to the report and all the commentary around what the Fed is going to do? There's a number of things to be considered. Um, and today's data that we got this morning uh, is, is much more favorable and um, is is really responsible for the nice market rally today, offsetting most, if not all, of of, of yesterday's decline. One has to realize that they are very, that that the PPI and CPI are very backward-looking numbers, um, uh, particularly the headline, because oil prices absolutely hit their high in the middle of June, um, and they're down dramatically, and gasoline is down dramatically. Uh, so um, you're not going to get anywhere near the July. I think P, uh, I think that June will be the peak number. Uh, today, for instance, I think the market is rallying on, first of all, the import and export prices were well below expectations, uh, inflation in both imports and exports. Um, but very importantly, um, the preliminary University of Michigan one-year and five- to ten-year inflation expectations uh, was not only down, but um, down below expectations, and particularly a big drop in the five to ten year inflation expectation from three point one down to two point eight percent. Now, the uh, one should also comment that uh, uh, Chairman Powell has mentioned uh, such surveys of uh, invest um, investor expectations being important in their decision. So, this is an, another piece of evidence that. Uh, inflation is really uh, cooling down. By the way, the break-even between the 10-year tips and uh, the standard nominal down is down to 2.35%. Now, this was a break-even that was over 3% just a couple months ago. So, I mean, we've we've had a you know nearly 70 basis point drop in that spread uh, between um, uh, nominal and uh, index bonds. So. Forward-looking indicators are definitely showing uh, a, a, a slowing of inflation, uh, even though the official ones, of course, uh, not unexpectedly uh, showed the, the peak inflation. Uh, retail sales today were decent. Um, they're, uh, the, uh, the, uh, one of the problems, of course, is it's nominal. It's not real. We're not exactly sure of the, of the uh, price index that will eventually be used to deflate these into real. Um, uh, the control group, which determines GDP, was up, uh, uh, say, tenths of a percent, five-tenths above expectations, but they revised down uh, the uh, May numbers uh, by uh, three-tenths. So, uh, but it did not show that retail sales are falling off a cliff, uh, which is, is good. And that also was confirmed by the Empire New York Manufacturing Index. is well, the only actual index we've gotten for the month of July. Um, very early and regional, uh, but did show a, uh, a positive number better than uh, expected. Uh, again, uh, what the market wants is for the Fed to realize that inflation uh, in, 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 the, in the flexible price data has slowed dramatically and those prices have dropped. Um, I think the probability of a 100 basis point increase, which was bandied around and actually uh, put a largely in the market after the CPI report, is now down well below 50 percent. 
as a result of the cooling of expectations uh, and of, of the cooling of the real data. I think it's going to be 75. Um, again, what's more important than whether it's 75 or 100 is an acknowledgement by the Fed. They see the light at the end of the tunnel. They see this, that, that, that their policies are, are working, the strength of the dollar, the complete uh, collapse of the growth of the money supply, uh, the dramatic increase in, in mortgage prices, there were increase in spreads. All those are dramatic tightenings uh, that are taking place, uh, and they don't have to do any more. Uh, and I think that's, that will spark a, a huge rally, uh, I think, in the equity markets. Yeah, you had Governor Waller uh, at a conference in Jackson Hole with the Global Independence Center, uh, which you and I have been involved in, and he, he, they were broadcasting on Bloomberg TV, and he was like, the market is getting ahead of itself. You know, they're up to 80% for probability of 100, and he's like, the market is getting ahead of itself. I'm still baseline of 75. He definitely was trying to talk it back away from trying to force their hand again. But you have Bullard right. out there, which is his colleague, who I think is, is quoted today saying – he could see it getting to four percent. Is Bullard now over his skis? Yeah, I think. Uh, don't don't forget, Bullard also said that he saw unemployment rate going to two and a half percent. I thought it was he's way way too strong on growth. I mean, he, he was. Uh, I think he is overreacting. I think Waller is is the base case. I think you're going to get a dissent. Uh, I mean, we have two weeks to go. Um, by S. George, who's worried about going too fast. He descended the last meeting. Um, it will be 75. I mean, again, 100 is let's get there, but make a statement that we're largely there. And may, we may do another 25 or 50 for the rest of the year. Um, uh, the market is positioned for, you know, a, a very aggressive Fed. They're worried about that. They're worried about driving the economy into a recession. Um, uh, the initial estimate of this quarter that I get from uh, S&P Global, which owns ISS, uh, ISH uh, markets, is, is uh, uh, a measly 1.2%. Of course, we've had no real data. They also say minus 1.8%, one minus 1.9%. For instance, for the, for the second quarter, we already had a, a big negative quote. First quarter, uh, the slowdown is here. Uh, again, wages will be the last. We saw a tick up, uh, by the way, definitely a tick up of, of, uh, of uh, the un uh, weekly claims. It began to tick up last couple of weeks, also another tick up. Um, yeah, I think Bullard is overreacting after having underreacted before. The only thing that my opinion would be to justify is let's get the medicine in there, but it has to be with a statement that we're near the end. Um, they, uh, and that they see signs of cooling. If you see that in the statement, we see signs of cooling and, um, you know, um, you know, we'll continue to monitor. It's not that that will encourage the market. The market is most worried about board over uh, people like board, perhaps overreacting to past data and not factoring into current data, which will continue to show inflation in the official data as we have spoken of for many many weeks and months uh on our on our show well professor thanks for kicking it off i know this uh it's going to turn to earnings season soon we're getting some good positive numbers we'll talk about that with with our guest here but thanks uh, for kicking us off to start the show absolutely thank you bye have a good weekend uh, we're going to be talking with John Davi, the CIO of Astoria Advisors. John is a, a return guest of the program. Uh, John, welcome back to Behind the Markets. Great to be here, Jeremy. So you, at, at Astoria, you guys do a lot of model portfolios uh, and also for inflation, have a strategy geared towards inflation-sensitive Assets is something we use in some of our own model portfolio work. Um, what's, what was your reaction to inflation this week? Um, well, well, thank you for in, in, in using Astoria's products, Jeremy. That means a lot coming from you and, and from your team. Um, I, I think, you know, so, so first of all, kudos to the show because Professor Siegel has, you know, absolutely nailed this call for a couple of years now. Uh, and I know he gets a lot of visibility. I just don't personally understand why the Fed needs to kind of push up rates uh so so aggressively and so fast when 
you kind of see that a lot of the forward-looking indicators are showing, you know, signs of tightening. So whether it's, you know, the dollar strength or the softening in the commodity prices, you know, the softening in the housing market, you know, and I know Professor likes to look at the M2 velocity of money, and, and that's kind of showing that things are tightening. So I, I just I don't see the point of hiking up rates. Uh, I think a 100-bit rate hike is just far too aggressive. Frankly, I wouldn't even do 75 because I just don't see the point because I think right now we're at such a, a crucial juncture that, you know, a couple more rate hikes or even a 75-bit rate can really kind of tip, tip the scales more towards, you know, much higher recession probabilities. Um, so, you know, and then like typically after, you know, you hike rates and then the stat is, you know, six months later you do a rate cut. So I just don't see the point of doing all this. I feel like it's been a pretty difficult few years for people between COVID. This is the first, you know, real summer that it's, you know, you see people spending money. The demand is very strong. So, you know, this recession, which was started from a supply side shock and now the Fed wants to kill demand, you know, it's just pointless. Like people have had a rough few years so just, you know, I, I just don't see the point of doing this. So am I am I surprised inflation was higher? No, Jeremy. Two years ago, you know, we put together an inflation-sensitive SMA strategy because, you know, we tend to be forward-looking. And, you know, when you started seeing all the supply chain, uh, chain shocks, all the stimulus being thrown in them out there from globally, it was pretty obvious that, you know, there was going to be a lot more demand, a lack of supply. So Economics 101 says prices go up. So, you know, that worked well, and, and, you know, the story's been ahead of the call, but, you know, obviously we can't keep going up in terms of, like, higher and higher inflation prints, right, because that's just not good. So our argument now, the story as we pivot, is that, okay, you know, inflation will be structurally higher for years to come, um, so we we still think it's worth owning inflation-sensitive assets, but, you know, we're, we're with Siegel and, and thinking that the, the high watermarks are behind us, and, and now we need to think about how to position a portfolio going forward for what could still be a high inflation environment and potentially higher recession risks. Well, let's talk about a few of those areas. Um, so certainly today you've got uh, the early season of earnings season is bank reports. And, and that's you, my, my first, the first one this morning was Wells Fargo and the headlines were they miss estimates or they had higher loan loss reserves. Uh, and then you had Citigroup come out with a a monster beat uh, and stocks up 10%. Financials are leading today after a tough period. Um, they're sort of expecting negative profit growth. What, what's your read on what you're seeing um, from financials today generally? I know that's part of the inflation-sensitive basket that you put together. Yeah, and, and I think like you know, we want to be diversified because not all sectors, you know, kind of respond, you know, accordingly to the inflation story. But, you know, I think banks are basically just trading based on the yield curve and elevated, you know, recession risk. So I think that's why you see bifurcation. But, you know, I think there's, um, you know, you want to be more kind of global and more, you know, across different sectors. But, you know, the, the bigger picture story with earnings is that probably estimates are way too high you know, whatever the stat is, you know, analysts are expecting a 10% increase or upwards of 10% increase in earnings, which seems unrealistic. And frankly, they always start too high and then they always derate, you know, as the year goes on. So, you know, all the research historically that I've looked at says, you know, in an, in, an, in a recession, earnings can go down, you know, upwards of 20%. And, and that, you know, hopefully doesn't happen in this. My base case is that there's still not some DEFCON 5 recession, but it's more of a mild recession. But, you know, no doubt we're going to have a decline in profits and a decline in earnings. And, you know, as we get close to the end of the year, it's probably going to be nowhere near, you know, up 10% for the year. Um, but, you know, as you said, Citigroup, I think it's having one of the strongest days ever. And, you know, it speaks to being more kind of active, in my opinion. Um, you know, I think way too much money was put into passive. I think it's distorted valuations. And, I think there's no better time to be an active manager as you have, you know, literally a world of opportunities to kind of pick and choose what sectors and asset classes you want to be in. Um, I tend to like energy more and materials more um, just because I think there's like a bull case, you know, three to five years out where I think, you know, energy stocks, material stocks have been ignored. Um, it's kind of been caught up in this ESG movement, which I think is being unwound. And, um, you know, I think as a country we've ignored – you know, U.S. you know energy material stocks for way too long, and I, I think there's 
a lot of these companies are profitable now. They pay back dividends. You know, there's a pretty strong shareholder yield component. So, you know, I think financials is kind of lower on the preferred list in terms of like gold inflation sensitive assets. Um, in ter- is the, the energy sector has had a, a really big pullback of late. Uh, how do you think about what's going on in, in that move? There's you got sort of the on our show, we've had people like Ed Morris, who's the Citigroup strategist, who's the probably the biggest bear out there calling for 65 oil in a recession. Uh, and then there's a lot of people on the structural bull thesis as well. Like, how, how do you weigh what's what's happening of late? Well, you know, it's the number one topic we're getting, Jeremy. And, you know, the inverse correlation that energy stocks experienced this year is just not something that, you know, usually lasts forever. Um, you know, it's it's hard for the S&P to be down, you know, 20 percent, as it seems like it's been consistently down about that much for most of this year. And energy stocks, you know, are, are up dramatically. Um, you know, and I think that was a lot of it was, you know, the Ukraine attack. Um, a lot of it was just oil going parabolic. Um, you know, the bears will say, you know, commodities are a late cycle indicator. They tend to rally as you get into a recession. You know, if you remember in 08, you know, the banking crisis was, you know, pretty abysmal. And then, you know, crude oil went to like $150. I think we actually peaked like in that first weekend in July, which seems like it's deja vu all over again because we kind of been rallying in crude and, we top ticked at 120. I think that was like sometime like late May, early June, and it's been you know downtrending since. Uh, I take comfort in knowing that like guys like Warren Buffett, you know, who seems to want to own most of Occidental, and you know, I think he's buying some other energy stocks. Um, he's being fairly aggressive, so I think that's pretty comforting because you know obviously it's still a good value play. I think the fundamentals in, in energy stocks are still very attractive. Whether you look at like quality metrics, um, you know, growth prospects, I, I just think like you know, for ten years we ignored energy. So much money went into venture capital from venture capital and private equity into like tech, cryptocurrencies. We basically ignored the energy sector. I think there was this idea that like maybe, you know, electric vehicles, but you know, it, it's not easy for people to just go out there and buy another electric vehicle and. Um, you know, I think these companies have shored up their balance sheet. You know, I think they pay dividends. You know, it's a nice, attractive yield. The shareholder yield component is, is attractive. So I think on a longer-term structural basis, you know, I've seen periods, Jeremy, in my career where energy stocks trade at 25 times multiple. You know, you're talking about now after this downturn in the last six weeks, you know, 5-6 PE ratio. Um, so, you know, I think that's, you know, pretty attractive. And, and I think that, you know, if you're a long-term strategic investor, uh, you know, it's still good to own, you know, any uh, inflation sensitive assets. And, um, you know, we just think that I had a story that it'll be with us for for years to come. And it's a nice balance, too. That's the last point to make. And and I'll hand it over to you, Jeremy, is that, you know, most of that 60-40 model portfolio still has a tremendous amount of tech growth elements to it. And, you know, energy stocks, material stocks, they just don't have a large representation in that portfolio. We're talking with John Davi, CIO, founder of Astoria Portfolio Advisors, uh, about the inflation report, some of his inflation-sensitive thinking. Um, John, it's, it's a great point. I mean, that, that is exactly how we've thought about adding in a, in a model portfolio sense of, you know, you have your standard 60-40, uh, but you need diversifiers and sort of the bonds are not providing that diversifier that they used to. And so you need alternatives. I know you've been thinking about adding alternatives to your own model portfolios. And, and we've thought of uh, trying to have an, a, a sort of like a 20% allocation in a 60-40 construct. Um, how, how are you guys thinking about including alternatives and, and the inflation sensitive? Is it part of the core? Is it part of the alternatives? How do you think about it? So, so very good question, and you know, I would say that it's been coming, um, you know, in, in the alternative bucket, um, you know. So, so what we've tried, what we've tried to do at Astoria Portfolio Advisors, and this is actually since you know, the firm opened up, you know, over five years ago, is to have an allocation across, you know, stocks, bonds, you know, alternatives, you know, have the commodities in the portfolio. You know, as somebody that's been in the markets now for, you know, 25 years, I just know that it's not realistic that just, you know, stocks and bonds are going to be the driver of your portfolio. 
And I, I, I really think, you know, I, I somewhat blame the ETF community because I think, you know, when you have these like zero cost index funds, like I know why advisors should use it, but when you, when you offer them for free, they're like literally zero cost, you know, it creates this illusion that like, you know, I mean, so much money went into it. It drove up valuations. You buy the same stocks, you know, in the index. And then, you know, the advisors think that that's a good portfolio. And, oh, by the way, over that 10-year period, you had, you know, massive, you know, QE. You had the Fed that basically provided the floor to financial assets. So five years ago when we started, I said, look, you know, I just know that this is not realistic and that we will have periods of volatility. And, you know, we want to have diversification. We want to spread out our factor bets. You know, we want to have value. We want to have quality. We want to have small cap. Um, you know, you want to have alternatives. And, you know, the alternatives that we've been leaning on are ones that are kind of inversely correlated or at least very, very low correlation to stocks, you know, and bonds. So, you know, we've historically used like kind of long, short market neutral. Um, you know, gold has had periods in the last five years where it's worked better than others. But, in you know, generally speaking, lower correlation. You know, we've used merge arbitrage in the, in, in the past. Um, you know, I think managed futures is something that we're looking at, you know, it's obviously having like a very good year this year. And, you know, at Astoria, you know, we actually, if I'm coming across as bearish, I want to make, I want to clarify that point because actually we're incrementally getting more bullish because we think that, you know, most risk assets are priced for this, you know, mild to, to even more stronger recession. And I just think that, you know, in general, you want to be nibbling on stocks and credit um, because historically when you buy stocks or credit in a recession, you know, your margin of safety is a little wider and, you know, you've historically been paid for it. So we on the margin are starting to kind of get more constructive on, um, you know, stocks and, and bonds. But, you know, we've had a good year in terms of our clients and the experiences that they're having, um, you know, can't really go into like performance and past performance, not indicative future results, but our clients, you know, that 60, 40 model portfolio and allocation to alternatives has not had anywhere near the experience of an S and P or just that Acquiag benchmark. So we've been very fortunate. Our clients are happy, but you know, markets don't stay stagnant forever. And, you know, we're starting to see really good opportunities in IG credit, I think high yield bonds, you know, we haven't owned this stuff in like five years because we didn't think the risk of war was attractive, but um, alternatives, you know, we'll always have that in our portfolio, but even those alternatives we're starting to think about and change and evolve because, um, you know, there's just other opportunities that we like, like I just said, managed features, yeah. which looks interesting. I know it's having to stay in the sun now, um, but you just, you, you see this evolution where, you know, I think people, advisors and clients are going to understand after, I mean, it's not just been a rough 2022, it's been a rough 2021. It's been now two years where, you know, maybe that standard 60-40 hasn't worked great. And I think more people are going to be open to using alternatives after the experience that they, they had this year. Yeah, the managed futures, I mean, it relied on cash yields, which were pegged at zero for a while. So now you're actually starting to get some real cash yields, maybe get 3 to 4% if you got people from Bullard. Uh, maybe they don't get all the way to Bullard view, but maybe they get to 3%, somewhere between 3 to 4%. And then they have a lot of commodities, and they'll ride the commodity trend. Uh, they can short bonds on different ways. So I think that is a... a you know, it was a time where it was there was not a lot of real trends in the market. It was one way higher in equities or some chop in in different trend signals. So I think uh, I agree when we when we're building some of these alternative strategies, managed futures are definitely uh, we agree a key component of of what we're doing there. Um, in terms of the, I, I, I want to drill in on your your high yield comment for a second. I mean, I, you, you're definitely starting to see some people. Uh, say, I've I, I been looking at some yields of 8% plus, you get over 5% credit spreads in high yield. Uh, and, and certainly you'd say if you're going to have a real significant recession, there's going to be further widening of those spreads. Uh, but is 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 there a trigger for you? Is it just a concern on how far into a recession you're going to get marked down on that? What How, how are you thinking about the, that high yield opportunity? Well, I, I, I start with like, I, I think like 08 was a game changer. Um, you know, in the option world, like Putski was, was created after the 87 crash and people realized that there's this massive left tail risk. Um, and I know your next guest 
Bruce is going to be talking about um, some of this left tail risk. But, you know, like I, I think like so, so 87 was a game changer. Then there was this put option skew. Left tail was taken into consideration. I still think that that is, you know, 2008 was a game changer for corporations, um, you know, in terms of how they manage their businesses. And, you know, I think like corporate balance sheets are, are much more stable. I even think for individuals, they learned 08. Um, you know, I always said, like, in 08, I worked at a bank, uh, and we were acquired, you know, in the 11th hour, and I remember scrambling around to, like, move my money uh, across banks, because I was, and I, and I knew that that was basically, the, um, you know, the low, and I, I, I feel like 08 was a game changer, not only for corporations, but for individuals, and everyone's, you know, did a much better job of managing their balance sheet, so I don't see a lot of default risk, in fact, this is the bigger comment about, I think, recession risks are elevated, but we're not going to have some DEFCON 5 recession. So I just think you're getting paid now to own high-yield credit. Um, you know, 8% high-yield credit seems pretty good. Um, even with, you know, treasuries where they are now, I think that's that's more than ample from a risk-return standpoint. So between that and investment-grade corporate bonds, if you don't want to be as aggressive, you know, th- these are just opportunities we just hadn't seen in, in, in 10 years. So. And by the way, they're down too, right? They're down, these bonds are down 10, 15% year to date. So, you know, if we don't get this big recession uh, or, or, you know, just whenever, if we do have one, you know, they'll mean revert. And so you'll make good money on a total return basis from our standpoint. As you think through what you're going to see through the next coming earnings season, do you, do you have a sense of how your inflation-sensitive sectors, what their earnings are expected versus the market? I mean, I think the big narrative, if you go back, you, your former firm, Morgan Stanley, Mike Wilson's out there talking, strong dollars going to erode like 8% of profits or they're going to be disappointed because analysts don't know how to factor in a strong dollar to their earnings. Do you have a sense how your inflation-sensitive sectors are going to go through earnings season? Any Any views on that? Nothing outside of just like, you know, uh, like it'll probably be a difficult earnings season just because the analyst estimates, you know, were way too high. But, you know, I, I think the, you know, we're not, we're, we tend to be more like macro top down across asset classes. I mean, we like the sucker on, on a long term structural basis. So we would never say, okay, we're less bullish on energy now because of what bad earnings season. Like if you look at the body of work of these energy companies, over the last couple of years, I mean, they've, they've been doing much better on an earnings standpoint. And, you know, just in the last 10 years, I think they've really shifted their business and you know, improved how they run their operations. So, um, look, I think the title of our Q3 outlook was it's time to start nibbling. Like the key operator word is start and then nibbling on both stocks and credit. We didn't say, like, it's time to back up the truck, but... You know, just because I think that this summer could be a little bit squirrely because of illiquidity and, you know, but I am comforted from what the professor said and just today's numbers, you know, I I think like we've had a very constructive two days of trading in the market. And I just, you know, everyone needs green shoots, right? Everyone needs these silver linings. So I'm encouraged with these governors. I think it was yesterday saying like, oh, you know, we don't need to go 100 bit. So I'm not sure, Jeremy, but I think we're very close to peak Fed hawkishness, peak negative sentiment, peak outflows. Um, I, I know Eric Beltrunas has been tweeting out charts showing like we've already exceeded like the March 2020 outflows, like from mutual fund and, and ETF world. I mean, March 2020 was a you know pretty bad year. Um, actually, it was the whole entire year. Like we've already exceeded that. So. It just feels like, you know, the the worst should be behind us. So that's why we're starting to say, like, regardless of, like, one bad earnings season, you know, let's start to, like, you know, roll up our sleeves and start to allocate. And then, you know, our inflation sensitive is a portion of part of a larger multi-asset portfolio. Um, so, you know, again, we want to start, like, I, I'll give you the forward-looking views on our side, Jeremy, is that, you know, all these opportunities that we now see, whether it's, you know, managed futures, different alternatives, you know, I think, you know, when the profit cycle decelerates, you do get this rotation back towards growth. So I think value can still work, but like we had a story that we need to be massively on the way tech and growth, which we have been for the last, you know, year. Um, I think we can be more balanced out. So we're, we're starting to think about how to position a portfolio for the next 12 to 18 months. And those are some of the, some of the forward looking moves that we're 
you know, looking to make and starting to make for some of our risk managed strategies. Very good. John, well, thanks for being with today. Very interesting discussion. Thank you so much. In the next half hour, we'll be talking to Bruce Levine, who is the CEO of Nightshares, about the night effect and much more on his views. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about what is the night effect. Bruce is a longtime friend, former colleague. He was the president and COO of Wisdom Tree, as well as a board member from 2006 to uh, just got off our board in 2021. Bruce, um, great to see you. Welcome to Behind the Markets. Thanks so much for having me, Jeremy. So, Bruce, you have a one of the longest histories in the ETF industry um, from your days at iShares. So what, what got you excited? Maybe sort of tell our listeners a little bit about that uh, and to what got you to starting this new business. Yeah, no, thanks for that. So, you know, my background goes back to the start of ETFs at iShares when, you know, it was all about educating about a new structure that baffled people at the time. Uh, but now is ex- accepted as something, uh, you know, really as the gold standard. Um, and then, you know, with Wisdom Tree in the early days, we were we were focused on uh, a new kind of beta, right? There was only beta back then, and now there's smart beta. And I think Wisdom Tree had a lot to do with that. And so I've always been excited about taking new concepts and um, kind of bursting them, educating. And this thing that we call the night effect uh, kind of blew my mind when I first saw it. Um, I was working with a company called Alpha Tray, which is our sister company who was running a hedge fund. And they were showing me some of the signals they use in the hedge fund. And they were showing me that in markets, uh, a very large percentage of the return uh, and sometimes more than a hundred percent, depending on the category uh, of the return of equity markets was coming in the overnight session as opposed to the daytime session. And amazingly, it was doing this with less volatility. And so I got really excited about it. And then I looked around and I found an immense amount of academic literature that's been written about this over the last 25 years, uh, supporting this concept. And no one can quite explain exactly why it happens, although there's lots of theories. Um, But uh, when I saw it, I said, wow, that that would really make for an interesting ETF. There's nothing like that in in the landscape. And that was really the genesis of the company. So right now you have focused on, well, I think there's a few different ways we could go. I mean, focus on a few different categories. So large yeah. caps, small caps, NASDAQ. Is is there a segment that you think is it that it doesn't work on? Are you, is, are you going to blanket the world in night effects across <laughs> all the, uh, the global markets? Yeah. So, so the night effects is an interesting thing. It, it does work globally. Uh, in our research and in the research of others. Um, but it doesn't work all the time. There are periods where it works better than others. And it has a sort of long-term good track record. So, you know, we're trying to, um, you know, we'll get it out in a few places and we'll see what the response is and then we'll expand over time. You know, the night effect also exists at the single stock level. It exists, you know, if you were to do a portfolio of ETFs, you could do it that way. So there's lots of ways this could go over time. Uh, and we'll look into some of those. Is is your expectation that it can get you close to? How do you think about framing the opportunity? Is it close to like the market returns in these segments uh, with less volatility? Is it? You said in some cases it could be more than the market's return. How, how do you think about the how people yeah. should frame this versus a standard S and P five hundred or Russell two thousand type type basket? Yeah, great question. And and so again, it's a little time period dependent. But if I looked at like the last, let's say, 10 years, uh, the I'll just give you some numbers here. The return on the S&P was in the sort of 13, 14 percent range and about nine and nine and change came in the night session. And the volatility of that was call it two thirds of the volatility of buy and hold. So so that becomes sort of a, a good risk adjusted trade and. You know, over the last five years, almost all of the return of the S&P 500 has come in the night session. So it just kind of depends on the time period. Um, in the case of the Russell 2, we found over 10 years that the day session was negative. Uh, and so more than 100% of the return was coming in the overnight session. So there you have a really interesting play uh, that could be used as an absolute 
you know, replacement for an existing uh, Russell 2 position, uh, and as well as a risk-adjusted trade because the volatility is lower overnight as well. So you said there's a number of theories of why this could be working. Um, and certainly you see it on, on a day like today. If earnings season, people are reporting, you know, you have people reporting after the bell and or before the market opens. And so all those things happen um, and move before the market opens. Um, and, and, and and then sort of the activity during the day can, well, either wash it out or whatever. Uh, is, is it because of those type of activities that's where all the major things happen? Or, or what other things are you think causing this thing yeah. to, to go to go into effect? So, you know, the, there's sort of three main buckets of reasons about why this happens. And one is related to what you're saying, which is news flow. So certain news flow happens when the markets are closed, particularly like M&A, which is very positive for markets, and then earnings, which on balance is positive for markets, even though individual companies blow up. So that's the first. And so you have to be invested to catch those. The other is a more structural. Uh, there seems to be a, a de-risking that happens at the institutional level, which sort of intuitively makes sense to you if you have ever like been on a you know a trading desk or anything, and you know the market makers and the people that are doing things intraday to try to work between the bid and the ask, you know that's their business, but their business is not to go home with inventory overnight. And take risk. So, so there's t- this tendency to flatten out uh, over the course of sort of by the end of the day among the trading community that seems to leave something on the table. And then there's just a lot of frictions if you hold overnight that go away. So, if you close by the end of the day, you don't have to deal with interest expense and capital charges, various marks to market. So, we think, uh, you know, there's a lot of structural things in the institutional community that makes the day quite noisy uh, and historically. You know, a much more poorly rewarded session than the night session. So really, a lot of this is about breaking out these two sessions, which look very different from each other, into one that's you know well rewarded and one that's not so rewarded, and giving investors a tool for that. So, so you know, when you when you when you're buying just the traditional buy and hold, the the original ETFs, you know, they just get cash to go out and buy stocks and so they hold them and maybe they do some portfolio rebalancing trades. W- what does the night effect do? How talk about like systematically, what, what can yeah. you do? What, what are, what are the exposures you're actually thinking about capturing here? Yeah. So really they're the first ETFs that give you, you know, overnight exposure on the long side and then get out of that exposure first thing in the morning so that you're sitting during the day and, you know, the way we run our fund is cash and treasuries. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a toggle uh, back and forth um, twice a day from being invested to being in cash and then back to being invested. So like today, uh, we got out first thing in the morning. The markets were up. Uh, maybe it was around 1%. Um, they continued a little bit higher today, uh, but at a you know, but most of the returns so far today has happened in the overnight session. And then, uh, so we're sitting it out today, and then at 4 o'clock or near 4 o'clock today, we'll get back in and, and have a long position over the weekend. How do you think, is, is the ETF, you know, the original hallmark of ETFs was tax efficiency. Is As you think through these, are these because of the way you execute, because of transaction costs, all sorts of things, is that going to be still tax efficient in that sense? Or is there some nuances people need to know about? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, ETFs have set the bar extraordinarily high on, on distributing almost no capital gains from equity funds over time. Uh, we will have some. Uh, we're, we're running this with futures positions right now. Futures get 60% long-term, 40% short-term treatment. So that'll be the bulk of what happens from a tax perspective. And then the cash and treasuries that underlie the futures will just be treated as ordinary income. So, uh, you know, I'd say uh, on balance, pretty good. Uh, but at the margin, if you can buy it, our products in a tax-deferred account, even better. Right. Um, let me just reintroduce our guests. We're talking with Bruce Levine, CEO of Nightshares, who has some very interesting uh, new ETFs tied to this new night effect where they're 
buying the clothes, selling the open uh, is is what Bruce just described. Bruce, you mentioned a sister company. Talk a little bit about what you guys are doing there. What how how it all comes together uh, and anything on 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 the full effort. Yeah, so I got involved in this company uh, about a year and a half ago that is really focused on artificial intelligence and how to utilize that, uh, you know, to, to essentially uh, have better asset management outcomes. And uh, it's a very bright group of research guys, uh, and they're doing really cool stuff. They run a hedge fund. They're about to uh, launch a crypto hedge fund. And they were using this, this night effect signal in the hedge fund, and it was one of the more powerful and compelling signals they had, and it was working. And they were doing it, um, you know, sort of with single stocks, with some broad ETFs, and they created these uh, what I'll call synthetic tickers, uh, which is the day experience and the night experience for other ETFs, uh, just to create the research profile that, that led to this. And so, you know, it was a moment of serendipity when they were showing me this and basically saying to me, gosh, we wish there was an ETF for this because we would use it. Right. And, and then I said, well, geez, I actually have a background in ETFs. Maybe, maybe we should create that. So that's kind of how it came about. Um, and as as I know you are an ambitious uh, ambitious gentleman, I'm sure you 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 come up with all sorts of ideas. You think uh, and, and and calling it nice shares are is is this a only only thing you think you'll go into other areas? No, it's a good question. So, you know, we're it is it is a a big kind of idea we think, and that's why we brand it as nice shares. You know, or sorry, nice shares. Um, we might do something else in the future, but we think this, this idea has legs. You know, there's ETF industry has been cut many different ways uh, by many different factors, but it has never been cut by sort of time this way. And so we think that could be an interesting sort of start of, of different ways things could go. Um, the approach today is an active approach, um, but it's a very predictable, transparent active and, you know, maybe there's things over time where we have more timing signals. Uh, you know, uh, some people would pontificate about when the night effect works best, right? So you could have, once you have the tool available, you could have people saying, here's the best time to use it. Here, here's some, you know, and you could have timing signals. So, you know, we'll see how it develops. That is interesting. Um the day effect versus the night effect is, is, is there anywhere that you found that the day effect was, was stronger than the night effect or is it, is it always the night effect? It's, you mentioned the time periods, it could be different, but any other yeah. markets? So let me give you, I mean, I don't have all the numbers around the world in front of me, but yeah. it was surprising how dominant and persistent it was literally around the world. So if you were an investor in Tokyo, buying the Tokyo clothes and selling the Tokyo open, you know, you had a good, part of the return coming from that. And so, but then when you break it down in terms of timeframes, it gets, you know, more, um, uh, more of a distribution, let's say. So let me give you a couple examples of the time periods. So in 2018 in December, when you had the Fed taper tantrum, the markets were down something like 23% in the month of December. And if you looked at just the night performance, it was basically flat. So, the entire downturn was coming during the day session. And flip side was Q1 2020 with COVID. If you remember, the news started out of China, you know, about lockdowns, and then it would go to Europe about infection rates. And by the time it got to the U.S. market, the markets were opening down. So most of the return in, in Q1 2020 um, or the downturn happened at night. And then it turned out, in, 20, in the second quarter of 2020, when the markets rebounded, most of that also happened at night. So, um, so it goes through these phases, and uh, you know, but over time, it has this persistence. So, you know, that that makes it sort of interesting from a, an investing standpoint from two two angles. One is it seems to have these nice risk-adjusted returns over time. It makes it kind of a long-term hold in a portfolio where you know every other asset people own is 100% exposed to the night and 100% exposed to the day, you know, you could sort of tweak that using our product. 
And then the second application being, you know, a bit more of a, a trading product when you think the market's in one of these these moods where uh, the news flow is affecting the day or the night session differently. Well, your your comment, I just started, my, my mind was wandering, but when you when you talked about the crypto <laughs> hedge fund um, and, the, the, and the crypto yeah. market being open like 24-7, uh, and there's all these sort of memes out there like, you know, what the weekends are... You know, a lot of the crashes happen on the weekend. Do, do you have a is is this part of the crypto hedge fund and in, in where things go there? Um, it, it, do you think it applies to the crypto markets in terms of what unique elements of, of the crypto hours? Uh, it's a good question. I don't know everything that's going into the crypto strategy. Uh, you know, the goal of it is to sort of participate in the upside and and you know, sort of protect your left tail. Um and, but I've talked to the, those guys about the night effect in cryptos, and what they say is, you know, it's it's again a little harder to isolate since there's no close. It's a 24/7 market. But if you look at trading patterns, you know, hour by hour, there are definitely some intriguing things going on that have to do with, you know, when traders are engaged from a geographical basis, really. Yeah, I, I can see that being very interesting. I, I mean, I wonder if if the traditional markets will ever adopt some of that mentality i mean you know this there are standard exchanges why do they have to close do you think the the new york stock exchange or or just not trading on exchanges would would eventually change the traditional traditional finance tradfi yeah it would certainly change you know for for the night effect it would certainly have an impact if markets never closed essentially because you know we think that that a lot of what's causing it is this structural, you know, um, these structural things that are have to do with the 9:30 to 4 New York market. Uh, you know, but but it's pretty hard to think about a, a fund world that's 24/7 because you have to stop it at some point and cut a nav on a fund. You know, and and there's this cycle that's in place for all these things, um, and for all these other frictions that you know I mentioned earlier about charging for interest and capital, and so. You know, we don't see any of that going away anytime soon, even if, you know, trading itself becomes a little more extensive over over after, or after hours. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fascinating, there's a lot of memes out there about, you know, when, when things sleep and why it's going to bed. Um, it, it's a very interesting uh, set of things. Yeah. What, what else? Um, just, Jeremy, just, just, just speaking about that, um, you said memes, you know. One of the strongest night effects we saw was in meme stocks themselves. So, uh, if you looked historically at, at some of the uh, the names that were in that space, you know, a year ago, um, really, really large percentages of the returns were coming in the overnight session and, and negative during the day. Hmm. So that, 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 that's that's a, that's an extra, extra interesting set of stocks to be looked at. Um, Indeed. In terms of where, uh, and I, I get the uh, the competitive dynamics. You don't always tell people exactly where you're going. I, mean, I could see things with leverage in this stuff being interesting. If you think it's, got, it's lower volatility, might as well lever it up. Is that is that part of your any 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 feedback to that? Yeah, absolutely. So we actually have a a couple funds that we filed, and you know we're in a quiet period with the SEC. And what they do is they're 100% long uh, during the day, and then they're 150% long at night. And the idea there is to leverage up in a very targeted way to that session that is, you know, that is richly rewarded uh, by comparison. And and so we think those products are very interesting. Uh, the total volatility of one of those is not much higher than just a traditional buy and hold. And so. Uh, you know, those will be for, you know, people who want, um, you know, a return product and, and can have a little bit more volatility, whereas the first set of products are really, you know, uh, more risk-adjusted tools, ways for for investors to um, participate in a large part of the upside of markets um, with something that is much more or much lower volatility in total. And again, uh you know, this is not a replacement for 100% of your portfolio, but but everything else in your portfolio is 100% day exposed, 
And it just turns out the day is a really poorly rewarded session by comparison. It's funny. I, I, I hadn't even seen those filings. So it's, a, it, it's pretty funny. Um, in, in terms yeah. of where, where you're going, uh, I, I, we've got a final three-minute countdown here. I, I, any, any comments yeah. generally on the, on the ETF industry having been in there for so long? Uh, and, and, and as you see it, uh, any, any other sort of thoughts that, that you have from the, from the industry? Yeah, you know, uh, certainly it's been this place of incredible innovation in asset management. And, you know, in my opinion, for, for a long time, the, the most interesting ideas have been coming out of the ETF space. And I, I don't think that anything will change that. Uh, you know, it is the litmus test for, for the idea. And, you know, but that said, uh, you know, not... It, it, it's hard to find good new ideas. And, you know, one of the reasons I got excited about this was this is something that was both really powerful and had not been done before. So, uh, you know, I think there'll be more of them, but, uh, you know, uh, time will tell, I guess. Very good. Uh, for people who want to learn more, uh, where, where would you direct them to any, any resources about the night effect and, uh, and what you guys are doing? Yeah. So nightshares.com is our website. There's a lot on there that's interesting. There's research papers that we wrote uh, with our research. Uh, we have things from some of the academics who've written over time. And we just launched a really cool tool uh, that allows you to look at the last 24 hours of the market and then sort of disaggregate it into that part of the return that came overnight and that part that is coming, current, coming in the current day. So that's a cool tool as well. Uh, and, you know, we're going to continue to add things to it over time. Very good. And and uh, and, and the hedge fund group, what, what was that? Remind people of the listeners for that if they want to look look up that? Yeah, so that company is called Alpha Trade Inc. They're out of San Diego. Uh, they have their own website. Um, I think it's alphatrade.com. Very good. Well, this has been a fascinating. Uh, you're always learning new things, and and the night effect is uh, is a very interesting new concept from Bruce Levine. Thanks for, so much for joining us on Behind the Markets, Bruce. Thanks so much, Jeremy. Take care. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to our, our sound engineer, Chris Tooks, producer Patty Hall. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 